everyone is becoming increasingly aware of supply chains for physical goods. Software has its own supply chain. A supply chain of open-source solutions exists, as does a demand for these solutions by industry. Both have surely grown, but it would be nice to have a way of measuring by how much. The State of Software Supply Chain 2021 is an annual publication now in its seventh year. It's released by Sonatype. In this interview, I speak with their field CTO, Ilka Turnin. We review some of the highlights from the report, including the state of open source and some particularly interesting statistics about supply chain attacks. Ilko, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. So tell so me a little bit about the uh, recent release of the State of the Software Supply Chain Report. So, yeah, the State of the Software Supply Chain Report is something that we produce every year here at Sonatype. It's uh, it's in its seventh annual edition now. And what it does, it, it looks at uh, the supply of open source, the demand, and various different aspects of the industry's usage of open source at large. Things like, you know, how much are we consuming? What the risks associated with it? How are things evolving over time? Um, and also, also it has an element of uh, the maturity of the supply chain. How are we as developers actually consuming it? Are we doing the right things? Are we improving over time? And this year's edition is, is quite a large collection of various different, really I see it as kind of a collection of different sorts of papers of the software supply chain itself, and it has some uh, pretty interesting tidbits that come out into the industry every year. And who's the report ideally for? What's your typical consumer? Yeah, no, it's it's really aimed at both uh, developers consuming open source. I think just seeing the volume of data or at large that's available is something that's really exciting uh, for developers. It, it contains some pretty good tidbits around the best practices of using open source, as well as people in charge of DevSecOps initiatives in organizations, really, because it kind of gives a sense of the, the supply chain side of things. And really, anyone who's interested or uh, a senior leader in software engineering at large. And broadly speaking, I'm sure every company is a little different, but what is open source adoption look like in big enterprise? Looks very, very prominent. In fact, uh, when we look at uh, just the uh, uh, amount of growth of open source in general, we saw almost uh, 73% annual year-over-year increase. And what's pretty interesting is is um, that increase happens across all lines of industry, right? You know, it, it doesn't really matter if it's a small company or a large company. They, they pretty much adopt everything. One of the kind of findings that we saw in not specifically mentioned in this year's reports, but the, the one previous where we run a survey every year, you know, to enterprises and ask them, you know, various questions about their maturity of dealing with open source. We see that on average about 85 to 90 percent of a standard piece of software is actually now comprised of open source and other third-party components and, and not stuff that's been written in-house. So long ago, there was this idea, and maybe we blame companies like Microsoft and Oracle, a little bit of IBM services group, that you know open source was amateur, it was not as good, it was buggy. You had to use a professional closed source commercial product. Was that still prominent in the seven years you guys have been doing the report, or is that ancient history? 
Well, it's really funny you mentioned Microsoft as that because they're the open source company now, you know, <laughs> running one of the largest um, uh, ecosystems of open source uh, out there, which is uh, uh, NPMJS, ultimately owned by them. I think that was the fund that was used in the beginning times, right? It was a way of saying, hey, you know, you know, don't you want to have a phone number to complain to? You know, if something breaks, you know, you're going to have to fix it yourself. But I think what that kind of dilutes is is that open source isn't one thing you know it isn't just a piece of software or it isn't just a line of code it can be kind of everything and everything in between right open source in the context of development today really relies on dependencies packages that can be consumed by developers as a part of their development cycles and that really has resulted in a place where it's allowed us as an industry to shortcut a ton of really, really small but time-consuming busy work, things like you know creating creating certain types of convenience functions, all the way up to scaffolding an entire web service. I'd say that um, open source uh, has uh, moved on significantly from that. In you know you can see it in the adoption metrics, you can see in the just the growth of volume, as well as uh, in the attackscape. You know things like people leveraging open source, which all speaks to the fact. That um, it's 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 turned entirely around. I would say that you know we wouldn't have the modern software industry if it if it wasn't for open source kind of backing it up. When you say open source is growing, that sounds intuitively correct to me. But is there a way we can quantifiably measure that? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the ways that we do that is we're actually custodians of one of the largest open source ecosystems in the world. It's called Maven Central or or the Central Repository, as we like to call it. And essentially, it's the default location of dependencies for any sort of popular Java dependency system. So if you're building with Gradle or Maven or you're doing things like Android software, chances are that the default location that your dependencies are downloaded actually is Maven Central. So we can use these registries. So in, in the case of JavaScript, as an example, we can use npmjs as a facsimile. We, in the case of Python, we can use pypy.org. And in the case of .NET, we can use uh, nuget.org. And what we can do is we can measure, you know, how much open source is being downloaded, how much open source is being published, you know, what sort of things are, are, are coming there, how many versions of open source. And, and when you look at that, one of the kind of interesting things that you notice is that the download volume, the, uh, the average growth rate of download volume across all of those ecosystems is about 77% uh, year over year. And for as far as I can remember over the years, that's been the average. It's not really changed at all, which seems to imply that there pace of adoption absolutely isn't slowing down. If, if anything, I think the number has ratcheted up in some ecosystems quite a lot over the last year or so. So I think even though it's not a be-all and end-all, I think it's a very good facsimile to, to kind of observe both the supply of open source as well as how are we consuming it as, as end, end users and developers. So I, I, I think that What's eye-opening to me is just the fact that that pace isn't slowing down at all. Like it hasn't slowed down in the last seven years, and it, it shows no signs of slowing down. In fact, it's, it's, it's speeding up, if anything. Yeah, I feel like if someone developed a software project today and it didn't rely on some open source contribution, that would be the point of the project, to do that as a demonstration. Uh, it's sort of ubiquitous in that way. That means we're all using software written by people we don't know. What sort of risks does that open us up to? 
Well, that's a scary thought because because if 90% of your software is not written by yourself, there certainly are risks. And that's been one of the key focal points of our report. And, you know, one of the things that we discovered is that this supply chain of the external code has become an increasingly attractive target. You know, historically, when we started looking at this, really, the risk was that you'd adopt a piece of code that had some sort of security vulnerability, you know, some sort of bug or some sort of unknown hole that somebody else could exploit exploit in order to hack you as, as they were running through a hack campaign. And for many years, that was the predominant risk that was uh, put upon you. You know, you could you put yourself at risk by forgetting that you've adopted that library and it kind of just stayed there. You never really maintained it. And then, then somebody discovered it and, you know, essentially ran a, ran a exploit against it and, and got in. And, you know, when you look at some recent events over the last five, six years ago, you can attribute many of the largest uh, hacks uh, or largest breaches uh, to that sort of situation. Equifax, for example, was an unpatched REST API. But when we looked at more recent events, we've really started seeing a phenomenon trending towards actually poisoning the well of open source itself, meaning things like legitimate open source being taken over by malicious actors, you know, either by finding the creds to publish malicious versions, or sometimes even just people pretending to be good Samaritans, you know, donating code to these open source projects, and then tricking uh, the project maintainers once they get maintainer access and, and, and taking the projects over. And, you know, more recently, we've started seeing much more intricate campaigns, such as what happened with uh, SolarWind, obviously, last year, where, you know, people are actually actively campaigning to take over not just the open source itself, but your own build uh, environments and things like this. So all of that seems to imply that there is risk, but the risk isn't necessarily that the code itself is bad. It's the the channel that we built to to adopt the external code rather than anything else. Yeah, I've always been a little curious about how some of these things run. I guess I've never done the research, but I've pip installed or npm installed plenty of things just blindly without thinking, where is this coming from? Could there be a man-in-the-middle attack? Uh, what's behind the scenes there? Is there? What sort of organizations exist to guide these things and manage them? Yeah, I mean, that's the interesting unseen world uh, of, of, of the supply chain. So, so there isn't one central organization. For example, PIP is a, well, the PyPI, which is the Python package index, is a volunteer organization called the Python Software Foundation that actually funds funds the work that goes into running it. Uh, NPMJS is owned by GitHub, which is ultimately owned by Microsoft, making them, ironically, one of the largest uh, open source companies in the world just on the merit of that. In Java, Maven Central is entirely uh, entirely operated by Sonatype, my employer, who are the custodians of, of that part of the ecosystem as well. And I believe Microsoft also runs uh, Nougat.org, which is one of these uh, key things. So, so the ecosystems themselves, they've most often grown organically just for the need for the uh, build tool to have some sort of default location. That's literally the invention story of most of these. And over time, each and every one of them, in, in kind of their own unique ways, have grown communities around them. You know, projects that start using it as a default publishing location, uh, people that adopt code from there, that creates kind of a 
kind of a virtuous cycle. And they've kind of grown from these very humble and often very unplanned beginnings to be these sort of massive backbones uh, that that uh, now serve you know millions upon millions upon millions of developers across the world on thousands of things. And that I think is is kind of the eye-opening moment that many of us have seen over the last few years, you know, for example, when the registry goes down or, you know, there's a DNS problem, all of a sudden your bills can't get to the things. And in those cases, then, you know, it's a it's a, it's a lovely head-scratching moment for uh, whoever is in charge to uh, debug it uh, on call. I'm curious if you have any details on this from Maven. Do people squat names? You know, when I start a company, should I go get my uh, package name that matches my company right away? Well, that's a good um, uh, good um, uh, practice to do anyway. Obviously, register your namespace just like you would register your domain. Within Maven Central specifically, in order for you to publish into Maven Central, you do have to uh, sign up with an account, you have to prove ownership of the domain uh, that you're trying to uh, take over. So, for example, if you try to publish artifacts into, uh, you know, com Google, uh, you'd have to be able to prove that you've got the right keys to publish into that. You'd have to be able to prove your ownership of that. And, you know, one of the things that Maven Central requires you to do is actually register register uh, a text field as a part of your DNS entries and then prove that you have ownership of that domain that you're trying to publish under. In other ecosystems, that's not the case. You know, there are uh, there are ecosystems that take a philosophical stance that namespace is, 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 is free for all, essentially, you know, first come, first served. And that's certainly bred some uh, security situations. In fact, you know, a form of attack that arose this year is called namespace confusion, which absolutely relies on that particular mode of attack. You know, I'll, I'll discover your name and I'll go and squat that name and then publish some open source uh, or, you know, not so good open source underneath that name. And that really is something that uh, most organizations should be aware of. So uh, as a rule of thumb, absolutely, you should be going and registering those names regardless, right? You know, in in, in, in Central and in some other ecosystems, we're in a in safer place just because of this ownership verification. But that's unfortunately not a universal truth everywhere. Yeah, I appreciate that verification step. But all that confirms is that I have control of a domain. That doesn't confirm I'm not a bad actor. If I could just, you know, set up my library and then push a bunch of malware and stuff to it, how are these systems not totally polluted with spam and nonsense like that? Well, you know, the funny thing is they are. You know, for example, last year, uh, kind of one of the cool things that we do in the report that we publish is there's a timeline uh, of attacks. And, and, you know, that timeline actually has write-ups that we've done. And I, I do recall a, a specific attack where uh, somebody literally just took torrent names and published them as packages just to kind of, uh, you know, they were like movie X, Y, and Z, HD quality 1080p as a package in PIP just to kind of trick people into downloading things. So of course, do, domain ownership isn't the be all and end all of, of you being good or bad, but it does give you a certain amount of trust that if you're getting a com.google artifact, it actually comes from Google. Obviously, if somebody takes that over, that's a bigger bigger problem. And that's something that a marketplace can't necessarily control uh, at all times. But it certainly is, is, is a step above, I'm literally just rolling the dice, you know, by downloading this random package with, with a random unverified namespace. 
So how should a responsible developer look at their package maintainer? It seems to me people kind of blindly trust, oh, it's in pip, it's in NuGet, it's, let me just use it. To what level of scrutiny should the average developer be looking at the things they install? Well, the practice is absolutely you should put some scrutiny on this. So, you know, one of the one of the things that we actually look at in this year's report is what are good projects? Like, are there any good measures for you to take in order for you to kind of come to a conclusion if this is a good project or a bad project? And we basically looked at a few different frameworks for it. You know, things like a OpenSSF criticality framework, which is a series of criteria which measures kind of a project's community, uh, its usage and activity and those sorts of things. There are other services, things like libraries.io, which kind of gives you a sense of, you know, project activity. There's a little bit of formula there. And then finally, there's a very simple metric that we kind of tried to come up with ourselves to just make it a little bit easier. Part of the problem is, in order for you as a developer, as a responsible developer to make these calls, you need quite a wide range of information. You need to know is the project active? You know, is, it, is this being maintained? You know, how often do they publish new versions? You'd need to know what the licensing situation is. You know, as a as a developer adopting open source, one of the kind of key problems is that that's often overlooked is is um, can I even adopt this piece of code? Will that make me have to publish some part of my uh, my code under a different license if I do that? Are the licenses that I'm adopting even compatible with each other? Which is you know a question that not a lot of developers ever ask from themselves. Also. You kind of have to have a security degree if you were to do this this absolutely right. Like you'd have to, you know, know does he have any known security vulnerabilities? Do the CVEs that I see on this name actually apply to the component? There's a and, and there's a whole host of kind of very subjective things like is this a good version for me given on given what I have, you know, in my current supply chain, right? You know, or organizationally, like should I go for this because it's convenient for me right here in this moment? Or should I go for something that other projects within my organizations are already using, right? Because it's kind of like a, if we're building the same thing, why should we use different tools to build the same thing if it's two different teams? So there's a lot that goes into it, and it's not a simple, simple problem to solve. If there's one thing that we did discover that was kind of surprising for me was that kind of a sense, you know, a sense of uh, what is a good piece of open source in general seems to be what we call the mean time to upgrade number, which is a fairly simple metric. We kind of came up came up to with it just to kind of make it a little bit easier for us to um, uh, you know look at this ourselves, right? We just said, hey, what if we look at you know a project with a few set of dependencies and uh, you know just ask how often do they upgrade those dependencies on average, right? You know, so we'll we'll take a look at. Okay, depend package A has a dependency B, you know, and B has a new version out there. How quick is A, you know, the root package to adopt that new change? And we look at that number for all of its dependencies, its own dependency tree. And it turns out that that MTTU range, when you kind of crank that out and you kind of kind of get the mean time, mean time out there, the lower the number, generally speaking, there's a strong correlation to that package having positive security outcomes, as in it, it having less security vulnerabilities, it upgrading the issues quicker. And also, you know, that has implications on, on the quality of the software itself, because them being more active means that the program is probably more maintained. The piece of software that you're adopting has a backing uh, framework around it. And it's pretty surprising how such a simple metric in the end uh, can be quite a, 
a strong indicator, even across these more complicated uh, frameworks to tell you that, that that's a good thing. So as a diligent developer, really, you should be asking all these sorts of questions all the time for every piece of open source you're adopting. Practically, you probably need to start with, does it have any known issues right now? And also, how active is the project? How well do they maintain their own house? And how, how, how often do they renovate their code as they do? So it makes sense to me that you could find a positive correlation between a project that uh, has few vulnerabilities and how quickly they're upgrading when their dependencies upgrade. But it also seems like there must be a limit to that. If I'm going to the bleeding edge, might I be exposing myself to zero days or flaws introduced? It, is there no limit to how quickly I should be upgrading? Well, uh, I think that's a really, really interesting question. And that's actually something that uh, came out in the report as well through what we call a herd migration analysis. So what we did was, because uh, we kind of asked the same question, like, okay, maybe maybe the old adage, you know, when you look at the meantime to upgrade as a on its own, you very quickly go, well, it just means that by adopting an active project and then always keeping it updated, I should be fine, right? When you look at migrations and, and you then start looking at this in practice, what starts appearing is a couple of different rules. So, so you're absolutely right with if you stay on the bleeding edge, part of the problem is if there's a new security vulnerability, there are no ways forward until the project reacts. If there is, you know, more likely you're going to have some sort of API, you know, deprecation issue with the package itself. You know, I'm on this version now, I've created the latest version, it broke something and there's no path for me to go forward. Like, you know, I have to complain to the project, wait until they crank it out and, and get things done. So we looked at a few projects and we looked at the total population of all migration activities, upgrade activities, essentially, that we saw. And we kind of set out a few rules for uh, the upgrades. We, we kind of said, okay, what we don't want to see is this sort of no path forward situation where, you know, you have no way to go, right? You know, you, you're in a bad version and you, you can't move from that version because there's no forward step for you to go. We looked at things like, you know, just a very simple thing, like it's a bad upgrade if you go from a non-vulnerable version to a, a version with a, no, with a known security vulnerability, which is something that happens quite often, actually, because people, people just have a lack of awareness and, and lack of exposure to, you know, what versions even have security vulnerabilities. And then finally, we looked at things like, uh, things like, okay, well, if projects upgrade things uh, quickly, what's, what's kind of coming out there? And when you look at that, we, we have a very kind of interesting piece of data in the, in the report that actually shows like the mass migration activity on a specific component. I believe it was, uh, Spring Core. And we looked at all these sort of situations. Generally speaking, the more current that you're staying, the better it is. But it's actually not not ideal to stay at the latest bleeding edge. Actually, the most ideal version in most cases seems to be about two, maybe three versions, 2.5 versions behind the bleeding edge because it was kind of the perfect balance of you still have a few steps to go, pass forward if you do run into a problem. But at the same time, you're not too far behind to not benefit from, you know, kind of all the cool innovation that kind of happens there, which is actually, frankly, kind of surprising. And then on the other hand, kind of not, because it kind of gets you to an old adage of like, well, just, you know, keep your stuff updated and you should probably be fine. 
Very active projects will have a latest and an experimental branch and things like that, or as you say, you know, the last couple versions are still maintained. Can I generally trust that? Like, I, I know that I'm getting myself into something if I clone an experimental branch. Is latest always best? Well, latest probably isn't always best. So as we kind of dove into these migrations and we started looking at, okay, if it lands on a version with a known security vulnerability, all these sort of situations, as I mentioned before, or it has some breaking changes, we kind of looked at all these migrations. And, you know, one of the things that we saw was actually these sort of rules that started coming out. So we kind of split them between objectively bad choices to make and subjectively bad choices to make. And one of the things that we noticed is, generally speaking, going into an experimental branch is a bad choice. Because often experimental branches uh, get folded back into the main line, they run out of steam, they don't get maintained. It's very easy to get stuck in those versions, as in you, it, the cost of upgrading away from them can become so costly that you know many many of us just don't want to do it, right? You know, if you if you get uh, entrenched in that version, it's very very hard to get away from it. The other problem there tends to be that you, with experimental branches and things like this, you have very limited community support, especially once the eye of attention moves away from it. So let's assume that it's a good choice for you to do today. It might not be a very good choice, you know, even after a year or so, once the project has kind of adopted what's there. But your software might not be able to move to that mainline version because you know, maybe they they ran into some sort of API problem or something, and they couldn't. They had to like fundamentally change something in that branch. So, generally speaking, I'd say stick to the mainline uh, releases, and generally speaking, stick a couple of versions behind. Uh, that's usually your best choice. When I've looked into some of the attacks on repositories, there they. To my eyes, seem to be general attacks. You know, there whoever happens to have this installed, it's going to indiscriminately scan for email addresses or credit card numbers or something like that. I'm yet to see one that attacks a particular company or organization or anything like that. Do you think that's a viable attack path we're going to see? Oh no, that's that's a very very common attack path already. In fact, that's one of the fastest growing modes of supply chain attack when we look at this. So in general, when we looked at just the growth of attacks on the supply chain, really the last 12 months have been uh, a, a type of tremendous increase. I think we saw over 650% growth in just the volume of attacks. That was uh, somewhere to the tune of about 16,000 recorded attacks. Uh, and that was year to date, not not even that. So within there, there's many indiscriminate attacks, but one particular mode mode of attacking is something we call namespace scanning also no, or namespace confusion, also known as dependency confusion, as, as penned by the original author, Alex, Alex Berzan. And essentially what that is, is a way to uh, target specific organizations by understanding what their packages are, uh, internal packages are called. So oftentimes... Most organizations, the way they adopt open source is they'll use the same dependency manager for both their internal packages, which they'll store in some internal registry or artifact manager like Nexus. And then they'll also adopt some open source, right? And, you know, that's that sort of 90-10 split that, that occurs there. And what Alex discovered was that what you could actually do is go out to these upstream registries 
and register internal package names because you know like i said many of these don't have this sort of namespace control they don't require you to verify that you you even own the domain so what he found is he could do uh, he could deduce for example out of public github entries or things like this what internal package names organizations were using then register that same package name in upstream registries but publish them with an exceptionally high version number and once that happened and that package was published he could then you know install backdoor exfiltrate you know things like tokens or databases that are that were in the local uh, system and obviously more he he was doing it as a, under an ethical uh, researcher contract but you know you can very easily see that that mode of attack can be used for many things what happens is most of us will probably just say download the latest version right you know coming to our previous discussion about you know what version you should be on the reality is most of us you know when we when we look at our package JSONs or or, or you know requirements text we tend to pin just you know download whatever is latest right now because latest feels like it's the greatest and Alex's mode of attack basically said you're probably also doing that for your internal packages. So if I register an internal package name in a public registry and I publish it under version number 699 or something like that, you're going to get your system is probably going to get tricked into downloading the latest, which is now there because it's probably connected to both your internal registry and your open source registry. And so doing that, it's a very incredibly low skilled attack. You don't, you don't need any special knowledge other than the package names or even a reasonable assumption of what those package names might be. And then you can have a specific payload. So that's definitely, definitely something that, that is the most fastest growing method of attack that we observe when we when we look at things you know we, we regularly report to organizations about suspicious packages published under their namespace which uh, looks to be looks to be namespace related and we've also even seen specific supply chain attacks targeting things like cryptocurrency applications you know there was a very famous case of uh, last year where somebody published uh, took over a piece of open source they knew was uh, used by a specific crypto wallet what happened then was they, they got a little bit clever they published a overtly malicious looking version in that legitimate dependency essentially they took it over published a couple of versions the community went hold on something's wrong you know there's clearly some very dodgy code here the community then quickly said okay the last known good version was version x y and z and what the attacker had actually done is in that particular version they'd injected some malicious dependencies which targeted a specific crypto wallet application which right now was in the process of upgrading to that version and when that version was run on any client device it stole all the funds uh, from that application from that crypto wallet so i think we estimate that they made out with uh, over four million dollars out of ill-begotten gains out of that so unfortunately these tend to be very very targeted nowadays um but because it's it's a supply chain you know you can leverage it to have wide coverage because these don't have to necessarily be very uh, sophisticated attacks because they they rely on uh, subverting trust that you have in these external pieces but they can be very very targeted as well and and that's certainly something that we're seeing quite a lot yeah i'm trying to imagine myself in the role of an it professional and the head of security at like a medical records company you've got to protect the data and you're hearing about attacks like this you're well aware of being targeted for uh, ransomware attacks my instinct might be, 
I need to lock down the developers. Let me proxy all of these repositories. You know, some heavy-handed approach. Yeah. So, like I said, right, these targeted attacks, they're more common than you think. You know, we've seen things like crypto heists targeting specific crypto wallets. We've seen people targeting specific companies with these low-skilled attacks that occur by just squatting your internal package names. Um, and everything in between, you know, you could argue that SolarWinds was a very targeted attack, as well as, you know, another campaign that was levied against a company called Code Cove uh, earlier uh, this year as well. So unfortunately, unfortunately, they can be very targeted. And that's really kind of the fastest growing uh, method right now. So if I were the head of IT security at like a medical records company, I'd be terrified of all these kinds of, of attacks. And I'd be considering a heavy handed approach like... I'm going to proxy all of the repositories and every request comes through me and I'm going to manage what the developers get back. Are there any, you know, approaches like that that are viable or what do you see different large enterprises doing? Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, that's actually not a bad practice, but it's, uh, it's less heavy handed than you think. So I think in, in larger enterprises, when we, when we're thinking about this, really, it's kind of, it's not a one stop shop thing. You know, auditing these things isn't just a point activity, right? It's not really something that you can expect to do once and then kind of consider the uh, open source good, right? You know, if it has known security vulnerabilities that are discovered later, you might want to Wanna introduce, you know, auditing at all stages of your of your build pipeline, as an example, just to make sure that you're catching everything as they come, because all of this is a function of of time, as much as uh, of knowledge, because we only have the knowledge that we do. Generally speaking, you know, there's there's actually a lot of advantages to just proxying your open source. You know, using things like uh, Nexus repo and uh, end up just setting up proxy repos to your open source environments. Firstly, because it kind of builds a catalog of what you're actually downloading to yourself. So you know what's being put into your software in, in case you need to figure it out later. And secondly, it allows you to do things like whilst we're downloading things, we can scan them on the fly. So there are solutions like uh, Nexus Firewall, as an example, that kind of sit in between you and the open world. And as your developers are requesting things, they can just be audited you know, on the fly doesn't really have much of an impact on on download times. Feels like the, the exact same experience as as just downloading directly would, but if it does have something that you know has like a ten out of ten security vulnerability or or really looks sus because uh, it's been flagged for potentially suspicious activity, like you know a popular open source project with a new contributor with zero zero uh, commits before and a and a really dodgy uh, email address. Uh, that that's from throwaway service. That's usually a fairly suspect release, you know, and and those those sorts of things can be monitored for and 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 done for. So if done right, that can be a fairly low touch way of uh, doing quite a lot of this sort of activity upfront, kind of avoiding the worst of the worst. Because you know, in software engineering, we kind of got this saying, you know, the fastest way of fixing a bug is the earlier find find it, you know, the faster and cheaper it is to fix. Well. The fastest way of dealing with the security vulnerabilities just don't have it at all, right? You know, don't don't get it in in the first place. And if you do have something, then kind of the earlier you can get to it within your own like uh, development cycle, the faster and easier it is for you to rip it out or upgrade it or or do something like that. So in enterprises, the organizations that do this right kind of do have that sort of upfront scan, but it's a it's a um, uh, scan that just occurs 
you know, as a part of the normal development workflow. They, they typically run these uh, evaluations as a way of informing their developers, not as a way of controlling their developers, right? And I think, I don't think there's any dev in the world that sets out to, you know, download stuff, right? Uh, that's, that's outright bad. I think it's just a lack of information. And, you know, in larger enterprises, when we cross the balance between informing our developers when things are not good and informing them why they're not good, that can go a long way to making it seem like, well, that's just business as usual. I'll, I'll just find something else. This version wasn't it. Maybe I can do this recommended version over here instead. So so that's definitely the case. On the on the flip side, if you go too heavy-handed, I'm, I've, I've definitely seen lots of cases where, you know, the CISOs have said, you know what, you're not downloading any open source. And I can tell you that's a pretty, uh, pretty um, lonely path to tread uh, for the CISO because why do you hire developers? You hire them because they're smart. They'll find a way around the problem, turn on your hotspot and download it at, uh, at home or something, right? So there's kind of no controlling it. It's just the part and parcel of how we work today. And so the best companies tend to be more informative than enforcement driven, but there's a level of enforcement as well, especially in the beginning that, that can sometimes be quite healthy, kind of avoiding uh, worse outcomes down the line. Well, if I understood correctly, it sounds like in the years you guys at uh, Sonatype have been doing the state of the software supply chain report, this was the biggest growth of attacks you've seen. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. Yeah, this uh, over the last few years, it's been over 650% year over year increase in just the volume of attacks that we've measured. Do you have any explanation for that? Why? Uh, so why are we on this hockey stick trajectory? Well, partially because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because open source is very useful. We use a lot of open source. Uh, because we use a lot of open source, it becomes an attractive target. I think the psychology is, is fairly simple, right? It's a, from an attacker's perspective or as an adversary, if I, if I say, you know what, I'm, I, I want to hack this company. You know, I've really got two paths, to avenues. I mean, I've got several avenues to do that. But if I want to do it the application route, I can either figure out how you're writing your own code, figure out the specific logic of all of your developers, the specific frameworks, you know, do all the all the upfront work. Or I can just find the headers that your website is throwing, find the top 10 most likely frameworks that you're using, and then find out all the known security vulnerabilities that affect that framework and and try them all, see what sticks. You know, not very hard to um, uh, you know script that out and uh, give give it a go, right? So, so that's one aspect of it because because we're using a lot of open source. Open source is a lot of is a target of the attack. Outside of that, though, um, it also is just you know return on investment on the adversary side. It's easier for me to affect one code base if I know that it has a downstream effect on potentially millions of end consumers, right? You know, one is a very one-on-one attack. The other one is a very one-to-many attack, and that can be desirable. So so that's why we've actually seen these attacks kind of move away from uh, people targeting websites, adopting open source to actually targeting the upstream projects that they know that they can adopt. That's part of the reason Finally, it's simply just the emergence of, you know, more and more low-skilled forms of attacks. You know, a form of attack can simply be register, you know, your customer, your target's package names in a registry and then publish some very bad code. Maybe somebody will get fooled because there's no way for them to, de- to decipher if that's a legit thing or not. 
So all of these kind of contribute uh, to it. And, you know, kind of another interesting thing that we actually did find in the report this year was that generally speaking, the more popular an open source project is, the more likely it is to have known and discovered vulnerabilities. So means that, you know, there's more eyeballs just all over the place, especially in the top 10 most adopted projects. Well, I'm wondering if we can do a hypothetical. I'm imagining, uh, you know, maybe there's some very, very clever, nefarious developer out there who has taken uh, control of a popular project or maybe medium popular and they've done something else clever, like found a way that only when it runs on an EC2 instance will the code spin off a thread that uses 1% of the CPU to do cryptocurrency mining. And that they've just, you know, got this broad base uh, botnet that's doing a tiny amount of work and they've gotten in through open source. What are the odds that could be out there and undetected? Very high. In fact, that's one of <laughs> fairly common a common form of attack to do that. So, you know, we've seen things like a series of malware campaigns that prey on Discord installations. You know, they they look for Discord uh, databases. Um, if you have crypto in mind, actually much easier thing for you to do, you know, not that I want to teach you how to run these campaigns, but, you know, much easier thing and, and a fairly common thing to do is find a medium popular project. And when I say medium popular, a couple of million downloads a week, which is a, you know, relatively small thing. There's plenty of smaller projects out there that have become relatively popular, you know, single maintainer project or things like that. What you do is, and what we've seen happen, is these benevolent strangers, good Samaritans, approaching these projects and perhaps even for a while legitimately contributing to the project. And once they get container and maintainer access, then uh, taking those projects over and actually introducing a crypto miner, not even in the mainline code, but in the post-install scripts. You know, many many package managers have a mechanism for you to r- run some scripts to you know install any sort of payload uh, as soon as the package is installed. You know, as a you know, it's typically used to compile stuff uh, on site. So what what you just do is you know, mathematically speaking, a couple of million downloads a week. You kind of know that that's going to happen if they run five seconds each in the system let's assume they have perfect things that's still quite a lot of currency that you get for not a lot of work so actually crypto mining campaigns are very very attractive because it's an easy monetization form you know you don't have to exploit any data you just get money directly out of their cpu time but we do see much more of these uh, targeted campaigns uh, as well right you know it really depends on how uh, what they want to get out of that attack and and uh, the kind of scenario that you discuss, discussed, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there's something out there right now doing something like that. Well, for whatever reason, I'm starting to, in my mind, analogize this problem to something like uh, flu epidemics. So we just live with influenza. We have for a while, we get annual shots and whatnot. We may be living for a long time with covid Will we always be living with these threats of attack on open source or will there be kind of some fix-all that someone clever will come up with? Well, I think, you know, it's really important for me to say that this is a champagne problem of success, right? The only reason why we're having these discussions is because open source is very, very useful in more uh, in most modern applications, right? You know, it helps us deliver software faster. You know, it helps us stand on the soldiers of giants. I certainly wouldn't be able to produce any sort of crypto library myself, right? You know, I just adopt something that's really, really useful in that sort of sense. I think, you know, in some ways, we wouldn't have the modern software economy 
that we have today if we didn't have open source. So in some ways, I think your analogy is is absolutely right. It's just a part and parcel of the success of that. But that being said, you do have a certain amount of hygiene. You you do wash your hands. You do certainly certainly um, uh, take time to take precautions, especially nowadays, you know, in public transit or or things like that. So similarly, from a engineering perspective, what that really means to me is that we've got a, an engineering practice that we have to invent, you know, as, as we're just doing it, you know, in, in an ideal world, it'll become just a part of the little bit of hand washing that we do every day when we when we write our software. And that that alerts a lot of the situations. But I don't think we're ever going to get completely rid of it. I mean, that's the beauty of of being an adversary over a defender. A defender has to find hundreds of scenarios to defend against. An attacker only needs to find one to exploit, right? So the odds are always stacked against finding that. And there are people with incentive to to do that. So they'll, they'll continue to find new and in interesting ways. Well, there's definitely some insights, trends, and good advice in the report we didn't get to here. For listeners that want the full report, where can they find it? Yeah, just go to sonotype.com. You'll find a big link, sonotype.com slash state of the software supply chain 2021, or just Google state of the software supply chain 2021. You'll find it. It's uh, kind of a lovely website. You can scroll through the uh, main insights. And if you want to get the uh, full report with all the scientific data, then you can uh, get the PDF uh, at the bottom of the page. Yoka, thank you so much for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's been great.